Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking energy and food and the geopolitical consequences of rising prices in both. As the world looks at gasoline prices, is it perhaps more food inflation that is the real story of the next six to 12 months? And what does that mean for societies? What does that mean for Europe? And what milestones should we look out for to see whether that story is improving or getting dramatically worse? Our guest is Doomberg. Doomberg is one of the fastest growing content providers on Substack, writing about food, energy, and global economics. And the team have a deep background in the commodities world. As always, please do leave us a positive review. It supports the show and getting guests like Doomberg. And I hope you enjoyed the episode. Doomberg, welcome to the show. Paul, great to talk to you again. Really happy to be here. So before we go too much further, I think it would be beneficial for us all to understand who Doomberg is. Sure. Uh, happy to introduce uh, myself. So Doomberg is a, a small team. Um, of uh, We run a, a bespoke consulting firm. Uh, in our in our sort of real jobs, but uh, a year and a half ago we started writing under the anonymous uh, Green Chicken Doomberg. Um, we publish six to eight articles a month on Doomberg.substack.com. We we focus on energy, um, so the the energy markets, uh, geopolitics, that sort of triangle. Um, lots to write about these days, of course, and we're going to talk a lot about it here on the show. Um, and uh, we've since um, turned uh, Doomberg into the thing we do for a living. We're now a, a paid Substack and have had a pretty good run. We've been doing that for four months um, after a year of writing for free. And so, yeah, our, our background is we're all um, former executives from the commodity sector um, with a pretty deep finance background and science background. I'm a, I'm a scientist myself um, by training, and I, I spent a couple of decades leading research teams in the commodity sector. And so I, I, I've been fortunate enough to develop firsthand experience um, in the sort of the molecular mapping of the economy. And we've been able to predict many of the of the crises that are now unfolding well in advance, which I think our readers enjoy. Um, and the other unique perspective um, is that we do come from industry, and very few people from industry are willing to write um, from the industry perspective because they're working at their companies and public affairs handles the outside world, and you know they have their stock options and, and their investor relations teams, and they don't really speak their mind um, since we work for ourselves, and now Doomberg is the thing we do for a living. Um, and because we're 100% subscriber supported, no advertising and no sponsorships, um, we are free to write uh, authentically and um, provocatively about the subjects of the day. And it's really the work of my life. It's been a thrill to do and having a blast. And so here we are. Thanks for that. I can empathize with a number of the points there about uh, uh, the ability to have independent editorial and so forth. Um, okay, so we are talking about essentially the the food inflation um potentially a looming crisis and this underpins quite a lot of your work on the on the substack talking about uh, commodity inflation more broadly and the fact that ultimately you know food is energy um and comes from energy and we shouldn't be surprised that we're also seeing inflation in, in it um before we sort of dig into um i guess the last decade and kind of how we got to where we are today can you just give us a quick overview about right now you know, there has been some drop-off in prices, but still compared to a year ago, we've seen enormous inflation across commodities and in particular in food. Can you just orientate us as to kind of where we are today? 
Yeah, you bet. Um, so you're correct. The, the highs have come down. Uh, the, the commodities have come off the highs. Uh, during the early days of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there was some panic about commodities from Russia and Belarus not finding their way uh, into the marketplace. And so there was a substantial risk premium um, put, into, put into the uh, commodities. That seems to have come off from the highs. But the long-term trend is um, because of a combination of industry not investing sufficient in uh, future growth, sufficient capital for future growth, and the ESG defund fossil fuels movement, um, we find ourselves today in a situation of net primary shortage. Um, and Europe in particular has found itself in a bit of a, a spot of bother, uh, as, um, as the Brits might say. And the, um, the, the, the real challenge, of course, has been natural gas in Europe, which is the sort of the catalyst that has tipped over so many other dominoes uh, around the world. Uh, and it's well-known story by now, but last year, well before Russia invaded Ukraine, um, Europe kind of messed up its natural gas uh, storage. The price of natural gas skyrocketed in Europe. Um, natural gas is not a global market, but it is connected to other markets around the world through um, liquefied natural gas um, carriers. And so the price of natural gas in Asia skyrocketed as the two regions sort of began a bidding war for the incremental LNG ship. Um, and so from that has grown a, a fertilizer crisis and then the beginnings of a food crisis. And even though the prices of the traded commodities on the futures have come in a fair bit from the highs, we're starting to see uh, pockets of uh, societal revolt in the countries that can least afford the type of food inflation that's already arrived and potentially um, heading their way. Although I would say that the uh, cutting of the deal to get food out of uh, Odessa and, and, and some of the exports going again out of Ukraine, I think has, has begun to relieve both the, um, the risk premium that were in the prices, but also the supply shortages that were beginning to manifest. And so time will tell. I think um, we'll see how things are truly going after this next harvest um, and, and go from there. But yeah, it's, it's pretty remarkable to see that, you know, even in Europe, you know, 10% CPI, um, on 8 to 10%, same thing in the U.S. It's, it's, that's pretty rampant inflation. That's sort of 1970-style inflation that we're going through right now. You're an economist. I want to sort of stay on the structural aspect of this for the moment because there is also real reason for concern about the next decade and beyond that whilst we're having these short-term price shocks in, in food, we're actually potentially entering in a long period of, of much higher prices for food, and that's really the narrative of this story we're about to tell. So before we get there, the last 15 years, even the last, you know, okay, we had the, 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 the 2012 price rise, and, and that's in, instructive for this story because that had deep consequences on societies, particularly in um, the Arab world. But ultimately, it's been a long picture of very low prices um, and low inflation in food. Can you just talk to us, in the, the, I guess, the structural underpinnings behind that? What, what, what has made us all get so complacent in the idea that food prices are low and will stay low forever? So the two words that capture the essence of what happened are shale revolution. And so you are correct. Since the 2010-type time frame, the U.S. has enjoyed a renaissance of fossil fuel production. And most importantly, uh, a massive excess in natural gas. Um, so we should take a step back. Um, oil and gas and coal are highly, highly inelastic commodities, which means subtle 
shortages or subtle um, excess can have huge consequences in the price, which is what we're seeing um, today. And so the U.S. shale patch and horizontal drilling and um, fracking um, caused the U.S. to radically increase its production of oil and also um, natural gas. And so um, the, the United States you know, exited 2010 producing about 5 million barrels a day of oil. And um, just before COVID knocked the knees out from under um, the economy, the U.S. was producing 13 million barrels of oil a day. Um, that incremental 8 million barrels of oil um, should be thought of in the context of the total global demand of 100 million barrels of oil a day. So it was a real substantial, massive influx of energy that caused primary energy to be in relative abundance, particularly natural gas in the US. Um, and then that caused food prices to be very manageable um, because ultimately food is just a solid form of energy and one of the most important ones. And um, with food inflation under control, um, everything was good. Um, so then what happened with COVID is um, US production came down hard. Um, it has still not recovered, so today it's only back to 12 million barrels a day. So we're one million barrel a day short of where we were in 2020. Um, Russia, of course, with all of their situation, is, is flat to down at best. And then there's a long speculative sort of strain of thought that OPEC Plus doesn't have all that much extra pumping capacity. So then when COVID reopened, uh, you know, when the COVID lockdown ceased and the economies reopened, you saw this spike in demand and we're starting to see shortages of energy and energy skyrocketed. So in the span of two years, the price of oil has gone from minus $37 a barrel to plus $130 -odd a barrel, now back to around 90 that where it's trading today. Um, we are also seeing what we believe is the beginnings of a deep recession in both the US but especially in Europe. And then the lockdowns in China have also curbed demand. Um, and on top of that, the U.S. has been releasing massive amounts of oil from the strategic petroleum reserves to try to put a dampener on the price of oil. If China had not relocked down and the U.S. wasn't releasing massive, massive amounts of oil from those reserves, um, the price of oil would be substantially higher than it is today. Um, and so that's kind of how we got here. You know, we had the miracle of the shale patch. They destroyed a lot of money for investors um, because they were overdrilling and, and over leveraged. And now, um, because of the anti-fossil fuel ESG movement, um, such companies are hesitant to reinvest. Um, and so we have a structural shortage in the face of what was a burgeoning demand. And then since um, you cannot grow your economy with, without energy, um, the economy is going to shrink. I get, obviously, that energy is crucial to this story. But there's also other elements as well. We, you know, we had Soren Schroeder, former CEO of Bungie, on the show talking about when you look at the ag markets themselves, they're controlled by, for the most part, private companies. They sit in an incredibly free um, trade, for the most part, highly efficient markets. You know, and, and we've had this, you know, 30 years of globalization. And where, where does sort of the political and the market environment come into this story that has essentially also meant that we have highly efficient ag markets that have managed to distribute that energy surplus, if you'd like, more effectively. Yeah, and some of that now is, of course, happening in reverse, which is adding to the inflationary pressures. Um, whenever you have a, um, a shortage of energy, 
and then that manifests itself in, a sh in say, skyrocketing fertilizer prices or shortage of foodstuffs, you, can, you begin to see um, protectionist policies come in. So the reverse of globalization, and we saw that with Indonesia, you know, halting at least temporarily uh, the exports of palm oil, and you had India talking about potentially reducing exports of wheat, and, and South America as well. Now you mix in on top of that skyrocketing diesel prices, which is a huge input for farmers, uh, and then also there was a shortage of the critically important herbicide um, uh, Roundup from Monsanto Bear. Um, and then, you know, you have some weather issues. When things get tight, you know, you're always one uh, hailstorm over the U.S. Midwest away from a bad crop yield or a drought in South America. Um, and, and this is what we're seeing now. You know, these things would be normal, quote-unquote, in typical years. But when you're short, you know, every every dislocation is, is doubly or triply painful. Um, and so um, it all does, of course, trace back to energy. And one of the primary, well, there's multiple ways that the energy markets tunnel into the food markets. The most direct and primary way is natural gas is the single most important input for the production of ammonia, uh, which is then, of course, used for fertilizer. But also a piece we wrote um, a while ago, and we're going to put a, a related thread out tomorrow morning on Twitter. Um, you know, in the U.S., we're using soybean oil to make... Um, uh, renewable diesel, which is almost molecularly indistinguishable from uh, fossil diesel. And so there's a huge boom in the conversion of food into fuel that we're burning in trucks. And this is being incentivized by, in particular, the state of California. That's having a material impact. Um, and, and it interconnects the soybean market with the diesel market, which is then becomes a direct transfer function to transmit inflationary pressures because of lack of refining in diesel into elevated prices for soybeans. And so if you look at the, the crop prices, corn's come back more than soybean, which is still very near its all-time high. Uh, wheat has come back to below where it was um, before the Russia-Ukraine uh, war started. And so, but soybean remains elevated, which is something we would have predicted because it has this extra you know, demand tunnel that ties it back to the fossil fuel industry. So it's, it's a really crazy policy, but you know, government policy and, um, and the desire for sort of a more renewable form of, of energy is, is causing pressures in the food, in the food prices. Yeah. And I, <laughs> we're going to come back to that because obviously that's quite a, I mean, that's highly regulatory dependent, um, whether that survives a big continued run up in food prices is another matter, but as at the moment, there's a lot of, uh, investment going in. Okay. So we bring, so we're up to, up to date. It's funny, isn't it? That COVID ultimately is, is, it's hard to divine whether it was sort of an accelerant, a catalyst for lots of these events, um, or without COVID, you know, what state would we be in with regards to energy? Do you think that COVID had a profound effect in terms of accelerating global awareness around climate change, etc., and policies to do with with that and that desire, and that lack of investment flowing into commodities that would normally happen? I mean, without COVID, would we still ultimately be where we are? Uh, I don't believe so, and and I don't think that COVID had an impact on people's perceptions around ESG climate change. COVID had a huge impact on basically bankrupting many of the key players in the shale patch. And um, when they went into bankruptcy, they um, erased their debt and you know reorganized as is typical. And when they emerged from bankruptcy, they emerged committed to having far more discipline with respect to um, drilling and a keen focus on return of cash to um, their new equity owners. And so when oil went negative at minus 37, you saw a cascading series of bankruptcies 
And these companies, having since the merge, their stocks have gone through the roof um, because they are far more disciplined. Um, uh, ironically, uh, and we've made this case in, in several different forms, um, when government opposes the investment in new investment in, in fossil fuels, it triggers massive profitability waves for those fossil fuel companies because, as anybody who's worked in commodities can tell you, um, price matters way more than volume. And as we said earlier, slight um, imbalances in supply and demand can lead to massive spikes in price. And so if you're producing slightly less, let's say you produce 10% less, and that causes the price of the thing you're producing to double, um, then producing 15% less is even smarter. Um, and so um, there's a huge discipline now, either forced because of the defund the fossil fuel industry or be forced because of the newfound discipline uh, of trading um, cash for growth um, that we're seeing producers hesitant to, to turn the spigots back on. And, and, and in some cases they can't. There's labor, sh labor shortages, you know, steel and piping and um, even sand that's needed for fracking. Um, this, this is all sort of a perfect storm that is causing people to have much more discipline uh, than they did before COVID. So I think the primary impact of COVID can be traced back to what happened to the shale operators, many of whom went filed for bankruptcy uh, in the weeks and months following that um, massive dislocation. And if you look, you know, at the product, production of oil in the U.S., it kind of it, it got back to it's about the twelve million dollar or twelve million barrels a day range, and it's kind of stuck there for the better part of a year. Um, and so, um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of enthusiasm to to rapidly bring bring prices on. I think. Any price above seventy to eighty dollars a barrel is is massively beneficial to people in the shale patch. Um, and then this is all, of course, much more complicated and a fun story to discuss when you think about natural gas versus oil. Mm, mm. And I feel this might be triggering, but of course, I'm sure that um, special windfall taxes don't uh, help the situation of encouraging investment into the uh, the hydrocarbon world. Yeah, there's there's no question that. Um, I would say that the oil industry in the U.S. in particular, and I know this is probably a global audience, um, they have a lot of power, and um, there's a lot of uh, friction between that sector and the Biden administration, and talks of um, windfall profit taxes or, you know, uh, we need you to spend now, but we're going to put you out of business in five years. This is not conducive to uh, the formation of investor capital that's needed to radically improve supply. Um, and so then if you do a thought experiment, like what happens when China reopens fully? Or what, you know, what happens if um, you know, the, the, the wave of people in India and China who, who are aspiring to join the middle class uh, climb their way up and, and demand the same lifestyle that we have for ourselves? Um, there's not, it's going to be a very long time before the world uses less fossil fuels. Right now, we're obviously seeing the government palaces being stormed in Sri Lanka, challenges in East Africa. You know, we're already seeing the consequences of food and energy prices, you know, spiraling up and the social impact that that has. Where do we, I mean, I kind of want to look forward now. Where do we go from now? I mean, what's the argument that, you know, this is just cyclical, we're going to see a flow back into hydro, into energy in all of its forms, um, and, you know, this will get under control versus actually this, the, this might be, have escaped us, and 
we're so far away from um, meeting future fuel dem energy demands. Uh, there isn't the investment going in, and actually the, the world itself is becoming fragmented. You know, lots of economists are starting to talk about sort of a bipolar world, um, you know, those aligned with China, those aligned with the West, and that itself will have a huge impact on, on the flow of commodities and ultimately their price. It's a great question, and we've, we've argued, and, um, and we still believe that in the near term, the single greatest geopolitical event that needs to resolve is how Germany and the rest of Western Europe will um, satisfy their energy needs coming into the winter of 2022 and 2023. There's a lot of uh, geopolitical games going on right now with um, Russia's trying to bust the sanctions by you know, having uh, Siemens return various parts to make Nord Stream 1 operational again. Um, we happen to think that's a power play to force Germany to acquiesce and to allow Nord Stream 2 to come online. Uh, at which point um, Russia will have complete control over Europe's energy future, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, there's going to be, if, if nothing is further resolved, a potential rightward tilt in German politics that we're keeping a close eye on. So the manner in which Europe gets through the upcoming winter is going to be the last piece on the chessboard that needs to move before you can really figure out what the next three to four years are going to be. Um, if they fold and turn back to Putin, um, that's one scenario. If they uh, you know, stiff upper lip it and they, um, they contract their economy by 10 or 15 percent, uh, conserve uh, and get through the winter prioritizing home heating and um, residential electricity over industrial uh, energy needs, um, then they will have broken some of Putin's hold over them, but it will come at a massive cost to their economic viability. And it remains to be seen whether the populations within Germany and other countries in Western Europe that are similarly aligned, whether they'll revolt or not. Um, so this is the single greatest thing that needs to resolve before we can have sort of an intelligent ability to look into the crystal ball beyond that event to see where the world's going to go. I mean, generally speaking, we're still not seeing nearly enough capital flowing into the energy sector as a response to this bout of high prices. People just don't believe that the government's going to support them. Uh, or they believe that if they do risk that capital and they get excess returns, the government's just going to take it away from them in the form of punitive taxes. And so um, it seems like we're stuck in a bad do loop, at least for a while. But unless and until the German and Western European energy crisis of the winter of 2022 is resolved, um, it's very difficult to say what's happening beyond that event horizon. I was reading something very interesting yesterday. It was talking about it's probably not actually natural gas. It's the French nukes that are going to be behind that sort of the, the decisions that are coming up, right? Um, if all those nukes are offline still, um, that puts a very different set of options in front of the European governments. What, what happens? So I think, you know, scenario two, the sort of catastrophic economic impact of toughing this out and, and the consequences for Europe. Uh, we've got an upcoming episode talking about this. Um, what happens if there is a rapprochement and the gas starts flowing again and Nord Stream 2 comes online. Is, are we, you know, what does that mean, do you think? For, is that the better scenario for food prices? It means $60 oil. It means, you know, 15 to $10 natural gas in Europe uh, per million BTU down from 60 where it is today. Um, I think it means uh, very good news for 
food inflation. Um, yeah, there's, there's no question that much of the run-up has been um, a massive risk premium uh, embedded in the markets, and, and, it's, and it's very sound thinking. So I'll give you one example. Um, and we haven't really talked about the structure of the natural gas market, but um, natural gas is very difficult to ship around the world because it's a gas. And in order to put it on these LNG carriers, you need massive multi-billion dollar LNG export facilities where you freeze the natural gas and make it a liquid. Um, you put it on these LNG carriers that float around the world as uh, sort of uh, floating arbitrageurs. Um, and then to receive it, you need a regasification LNG import facility. Um, and so that infrastructure doesn't quite exist to fully replace what is currently being sourced by Russia, uh, from Russia. So what happened um, two months ago, I believe it was, um, uh, one LNG export facility in Freeport, Texas exploded. And that took off 20% of the U.S. LNG export capacity. Mm. Definitely not a cyber attack. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely not a cyber attack. There's certainly a lot of intrigue about the cause of it, for sure. But just to give you some numbers, the U.S. produces um, 100 BCF a day of natural gas. And it was exporting, let's say, 13 BCF a day. Um, that explosion took off 2 BCF a day. So 2% of U.S. natural gas production, but um, 15 to 20% of what its export capacity was. The price of natural gas in Europe, because of that one explosion, went from $30 per million BTU, this is at the Dutch TTF um, hub, uh, to $60 per million BTU. The price of natural gas in Europe, which was already sky high compared to the US, doubled because 2% of US's production was pulled from the export market. Think about that. It's really remarkable. It's, it's, it, sh it lays bare the raw price inelasticity of demand of energy. So your question then, what happens if there's uh, you know, um, peace in our time and uh, everybody is shaking hands and um, Putin is welcomed back into the, uh, the world of respectable leaders, I think you would see a crash in energy of epic proportions and you would see a crash in food prices. Um, and um, for the poor of the world, that is an unbelievably desirable outcome. Uh, peace is almost always a good idea. Um, in this particular case, if we could find a resolution to that crisis, I don't happen to think that there's one on the horizon, but if we woke up tomorrow um, and we saw that there was a peace deal between Ukraine, maybe brokered by China um, somehow, um, the price of energy would collapse and with it, so too would the price of food. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focus solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. We spoke first, you know, a couple of months ago, and the situation then felt alarming, you know, when we got off that conversation. And, and really, in, in reality, nothing has changed, right? The, the war in Ukraine drags on. That, as you say, is the real pivot point right now for, and in fact, we've had this increased concern over Taiwan, etc. And in that period, we've seen the events in Sri Lanka, like I said, you know, that these first sort of ructions of, uh, of, of society spasming over, over, uh, um, food prices and energy prices. 
where does this sit? I mean, you said something really interesting when we first spoke about this, you know, 12 days to madness. And we've got at the moment, you know, societies, especially in the US, because, you know, but also in Europe, up in arms over gas prices, i.e. gasoline prices, fuel prices. I mean, I, I guess I want to get some sense of, you know, that there's focus on that, yet it seems to me like, you know, you could things can go south very quickly and and you know people might care about the, the the price of the gas in their car but when they start actually seeing the price of staples triple quadruple that's going to have a profound societal impact um, which might make that those decisions around peace that much more acute yeah so one thing has changed since we last spoke at that event uh, i believe it was put on by reuters um it has become clear that the sanctions have failed in the following way the sanctions have not been able to keep Russian critical resources off the market. Um, it has reshuffled where those commodities go, like fertilizer, um, oil, and natural gas. But by and large, contrary to what was um, sort of conventional wisdom back when we first spoke, it has become clear that there are enough buyers for enough of Putin's critical raw materials that the feared shortages that were being priced into these um, inelastic markets have not yet materialized. Um, there's lots of evidence that the sanctions have failed, and this is a controversial statement, and I get some, some flack for it on Twitter, but the Russian ruble has stabilized. The Russian central government has cut interest rates to 8%. They were 9.5% before the war and got as high as 20% at the peak of the sanctions. Um, they're cutting interest rates as fast as they can because they don't want the ruble to strengthen too much. Um, and so um, Russian oil and gas is finding its way to the market. And, and if it didn't, he would still have benefited financially because if we cut um, you know, the volume coming out of Russia by 50%, the price of, of what he's selling would weigh more than double. And so he would end up with the same amount of dollars, which is a point we've made multiple times in, in our pieces and on podcast appearances. You cannot win a commodity fight by targeting price. Um, you, you have to target volume in the sense that you have to outproduce and, and tank the price. Um, if we shut in his volume to the extent that we can, it would hurt us and it would help him. Um, and so we should let his energy get on the market and we should be pumping as much as we can temporarily in order to drive prices down because that will crush his revenue much more than us trying to stop his volume from coming out. Um, now, there's a second order effect here, and this is where you're seeing the countries that have the most uh, inflation problems is because during times of energy shortages, the currencies of net energy importers get weaker, and the currencies of net energy exporters have an advantage, which is why you see the ruble strengthening, um, and you see the euro and the British pound and the Japanese yen weakening. All three of those areas um, are radically short energy. And so um, in a developing country, um, if you see hyperinflation in the currency because they can't afford to get the U.S. dollars they need to buy the commodities they need, and many of these commodities, as you know, are, are settled in U.S. dollars, that's the spiral. And that's what happened in Sri Lanka. That's what we're seeing um, you know, our, uh, in, in um, various other countries. Um, and, and so if the currencies begin to collapse in the face of an energy spike, uh, cost inflation spike, that's the doom loop. And that's where you see these sort of the storming of the palaces and 
the need for international aid and bailouts, etc. Where does that leave then? This circles back to, to Europe, right? Again, in sort of that's in in either scenario. Well, in, in that second scenario where they 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 continue to to hold out against Russian gas to, in solidarity to Ukraine, do we, we just see that continue to weaken? And, and you know, what's the prognosis about when you start to see food riots in European countries? Yeah. So let's just benchmark everything for people here. So as we are recording this, I have my Bloomberg open. Um, in the U.S. today, natural gas is trading for eight dollars, and in Europe it's fifty-eight dollars, and in Asia it's forty-five dollars. So what do those numbers mean? Let's put it in a, a frame framework that people can understand. Um, in order to convert what a price of natural gas means relative, say, you know, uh, dollars per barrel oil, you take the price of natural gas and you multiply it by six. That's a good rule of thumb. So if we just round up. And say the price of natural gas in Europe is sixty dollars today. That's the equivalent of, you know, um, three hundred and sixty dollars a barrel oil. Now, natural gas is a really important, right at the front end of our supply chain, critical input. So, for three hundred sixty dollars a barrel equivalent, you are paying that amount to heat your homes, to make your fertilizer, and to 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 burn it to create electricity. So what does that mean? That means that in Germany today, year ahead, um, baseload power is 400 euros per megawatt hour. That's up from 50 euros per megawatt hour two years ago. You have an eight-fold increase in the price of electricity. No economy can withstand that, and that's why you see, for the first time in decades, Germany actually had. Um, A current account deficit. It, it had more um, imports than it did exports, as measured in euros. And this is shocking for a manufacturing powerhouse like Germany. So, if they hold out, they will suffer a massive, massive recession slash potentially depression. Um, and we shall see. Um, and so, you have today natural gas in the U.S. trading at fifty dollars a barrel of oil. Versus three hundred and fifty dollars a barrel oil in Europe. Um, this is why you see China turning so rapidly back to coal. Uh, news broke this morning that China has stopped working with the U.S. on climate change. Um, they're going to build out a convenience, you know, over over Taiwan, right? But yeah, yeah. you know, Miss um, Pelosi goes to Taiwan, and now we can build as many coal plants as we want. Climate obligations be damned, um, and so. You're going to see, like the price of coal, is four hundred dollars a ton. It was forty dollars or fifty dollars a ton two years ago. So you're seeing these massive, I mean, incomprehensibly large spikes in primary energy, which can only find its way through down the value chain, and it's going to crush the European manufacturing sector. There's just no two ways about it. And so if you're,、um, let's say you're a fertilizer producer. And your plant is in Europe. Fertilizer is priced globally.、Uh, if your plant is in the U.S. and that's where your competitor sits, they're paying eight dollars per million BTU for their natural gas, and you're paying sixty. You shut your plant. You can't compete. Alternatively, if you're the person in the U.S., you're printing cash because you're making money on that spread. So until the natural gas market globalizes, and we could talk about what's needed 
for that to happen. You're seeing these like generational arbitrage opportunities uh, that are just were unthinkable three, four, five years ago. Which is where we're seeing the incredible profits coming out of the commodity traders, right? Uh, depending on where their plants are located, yeah. Where does this end up with the food story, though? Are we, you know, I mean, what's the timeline for holding out on this? Because if, if, I'm, if I'm sort of understanding right, this is pretty bad news for Ukraine and pretty good news for Russia, right? Because it just is ultimately unsustainable. And as you, you know, we the 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 current options on the table, the current sanctions are ultimately making too much pain or will be making too much pain, particularly for Europe. Yeah. So it's two parts of that question. You know, what, what is the short-term consequence? And then what is the long-term consequence? In the short term, it erodes Ukraine's situation to the advantage of Putin. Um, absent this energy leverage, I think the military performance would, would have put him in a far worse circumstance. I think we could agree on that. But he has this advantage, and we gave it to him, and shame on us for doing it. Uh, which is a point we've been making for long before he went to war uh, in Ukraine. We wrote a piece um, last fall um, called Putin's Fools Rush In. And we just assumed that nobody would want to put themselves in the position that Germany finds itself now and that they would fold and that uh, Nord Stream 2 would come online. That didn't happen. He invaded Ukraine. Um, Nord Stream 2 did not come online. We didn't think he would invade Ukraine. That was a mistake we made. He did. I think he overplayed his hand. I think there were more economical uh, concessions he could have extracted, uh, much to the benefit of him and his society. He chose to go to war. That was his fault. Um, but here we are. Um, that weapon that we gave him is the only thing that is sort of standing in the way of his complete collapse. He has that weapon today. So in the short term, all those things are true. In the long term, one really important thing has to happen, which is a globalization of natural gas. It is not a global market today because there does not exist sufficient export and import capacities in the places that are long and short um, to make one global price for natural gas a possibility. Now, there will never be one global price. There isn't one global price for oil. But oil is traded much more tightly because it is a liquid and easier to transport. Because of this crisis, it is inevitable that that arbitrage, that generational arbitrage we discussed, will have to close. And once those plants are built, the LNG export facilities in the US, in Australia, in Qatar, in Russia. And then once those LNG export, uh, import facilities to receive that natural gas are built, particularly in Europe, uh, but in parts of Australia and parts of the US as well, uh, you will see um, a far tighter spread of natural gas globally, which will have the net effect of bringing down the price of natural gas in aggregate. It'll go up in the places where it's cheap today, and it'll come down in the places where it's, where it's expensive. And then that will make a far more stable global fertilizer market, which will then hopefully stabilize uh, food production. So that is the sort of the thermodynamic end state, but the, um, the activation barrier, the kinetic activation barrier to get there is, is the pain that we're going to have to suffer for the next few years. Which is both a long time, right? I mean, these, are, these, these export facilities take five years to, to come online. But also, and this might be anecdotal, so I'd love to get your comment on it. You know, it seems like all of these um, potential exporters are struggling to get FID, they're struggling to get financing, you know, there's also um, you know, political, a lack of political emphasis, you know, quite understandably, right? You know, uh, we, we like our cheap natural gas here in, in, in Texas, 
or sorry, in the US, I should say, are you actually really seeing that start to move into reality? Because it seems to me like, you know, there's quite a lot of pressures on on not becoming a global market, or at least a concern from the financiers thinking, well, where's this, what's this going to be worth in 10 years against the backdrop of energy transition, carbon taxes and the rest? And that's why the resolution of what's going to happen in Europe is so critical, because we have not yet experienced enough pain to trigger the emergency type response that we would need to get what I just described earlier done in a time frame um, that is acceptable. So if we were at war, like true war, declared war, world war, um, it wouldn't take us five years to get all this infrastructure in place. The delays are not because we don't have the capacity to make the pipes and to connect them. It's because of the regulatory and the environmental impact studies and the permitting and the lawsuits and so on and so on and so on. Um, it, you know, we started with an idea in 1939 and we're dropping nuclear weapons on Japan by 1945. Um, it can be done. We reoriented the entire manufacturing infrastructure and base of the United States in a matter of months to produce tanks and trucks and airplanes instead of vehicles for you know, its citizens. So it can be done. The question is, what amount of pain do we need to see in order to inject the true amount of urgency that would be needed to make it done? Um, and that remains to be seen. So for example, a milestone we're watching is whether or not Germany will um, not only not shut down its three remaining nuclear reactors, but will restart the three that it just shut down. Um, it's the craziest policy in the world that they've done this to themselves in the middle of an energy emergency to shut down perfectly operable nuclear power plants because reasons. I mean, I, and so um, we are certainly nowhere near serious enough to do the type of infrastructure investing that you alluded to while we're still messing around with whether or not we should keep three perfectly operable nuclear power plants open. Um, and so um, you're correct. Um, if we just sort of muddle along and we get through the winter and there's a recession but not a depression and the pain is high but not too high, um, then we'll just have to wait for more pain later on because the, ultimately the end state is humanity will not flourish without getting something like that done. Yeah, it's really challenging, isn't it? Because ultimately, you know, we've had 30 years of a very stable global political backdrop, increasing free trade, and most of the commodity traders themselves and investors, you know, are, are making decisions or have made decisions purely on ultimately economics and risk. And suddenly now the biggest challenge or the biggest pivot point as you highlighted earlier is is there going to be peace in our time or are things going to get a whole lot worse and you know and that is is sits out those decisions ultimately sit outside traditional economics to some extent um you know, or at least for a period of time until those economics become overwhelming and we start seeing food riots like we've said and you know and public pressure democracies demand peace um, you know, it's, it's a really challenging time to manage that risk. Can you just, I mean, how, you know, where should traders, investors, is, should everyone just sit tight, you know, and, and, and as this plays out? And, and if so, for how long do you think before these decisions become just crucial? So the, the, essentially what you're asking is what are the milestones we should be looking for? Yes. <laughs> much give, us, give us an indication that the level of seriousness required might be on offer. Um, I already mentioned one, which is the nuclear power situation in Germany. Uh, I'll give you a few more. Um, 
with this deal that is wake, making its way through the U.S. Senate and whether or not the Mountain Valley Pass pipeline project will get approved um, as part of that uh, proposal. So this is a, a, a pipeline in the U.S. that is 95% complete, um, that has been in the works for more years than the op operators of that pipeline would like to admit, um, and it's been held up because of nuisance lawsuits for years, even though it's almost done, and completing that pipeline will allow natural gas producers in Appalachia to um, take out more of their natural gas out of the region. Right now they're capped by pipelines, and pipelines are the number one target of the radical environmentalists. So if Mountain Valley Pass gets approved, if the Pickering Nuclear Power Plant in Ontario, Canada um, is saved and not taken offline in 2025 as is planned, um, if uh, Nord Stream 2 comes on, for example, like we've talked about earlier, um, if China re re you know, um, drops its soft ban on Australian coal, um, these are all signs um, that perhaps we're starting to get serious about energy again. Um, but until we resolve what's happening in Germany for the winter, it's hard to say. And so the question is, is the pain that is about to be suffered by the, you know, I say German, but I speak more broadly, you know, Western European citizenry, if, is that pain enough to trigger sort of a, a reconnection with physics, as we would say? Um, and by the way, like when we talk to our friends who are in Europe, they say that this is not like top of the news stuff. People don't are mostly blissfully unaware of what's coming. Um, maybe you have better sources, but um, that would surprise me. But the, I, I take it at face value. Like what's coming is is not really internalized yet in Europe, and so. Um, the amount of pain that needs to be suffered probably needs to increase. Um, but there are certain milestones that we are watching. Again, nuclear Germany, nuclear Canada, pipelines in the U.S. Um, um, whether the president truly stares down the more radical environmentalist movement. Um, Diablo Canyon in, in California is the largest, um, they're the last uh, nuclear power plant in the state. It produces something like um, you know, 10% of all of their electricity and 20% of their baseload electricity. It's scheduled for close. Um, the governor, um, uh, Gavin Newsom, does, I think, recognize the need to keep that plan open and is trying to sort of, um, you know, thread the needle politically so he doesn't anger his radical environmental base. Um, it's time we got serious about energy again. It's time that we understood um, the, the constraints of physics. Um, we're, we're in the middle of writing a piece right now about the, the sort of the Malthusian origins of the radical environmental movement um, and the, the sort of depopulation movement. and. You know, um, it's really kind of gross when you read that history. Um, it's, it's kind of offensive when you read that history. Um, and um, it's, it's deeply racist, for one thing. Um, yeah, I was going to say, it's um, yeah, particular it, populations that they want to shrink. Right? Yeah, like um, they, yeah and, I, and our answer to them is you first. Final question is essentially... This continued pain increases, and again, these are these are these are juggernauts that take a long time to turn around. There's no quick fix to a lot of this stuff. Um, and certainly the pain is going to be felt first and foremost by underdeveloped countries. They just don't have the, the currency reserves to compete for, for scarce commodity resources, and irrespective of, of the outcomes there, um, which is going to you know, unfortunately result in you know, more tragedies on our screens, I, I, I see. But the, one of the main centers of pain, is, as you highlighted, is going to be Europe. And Europe is, a, is democratic. Um, those governments have relatively limited room for maneuver compared to, say, China um, and elsewhere. 
in when confronting these really challenging scenarios and we are talking you know food you know incredible rises in 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 staple prices in food prices for for staples sorry at some point i guess what i'm leading up to here rather inexpertly is saying that isn't putin always going to win this one because at some point democracies are just not going to accept a certain level of pain before changing their governments for policies they do accept. Yeah, you know, um, my friend Grant Williams, who's a really unbelievable uh, market analyst, put out a piece uh, for his newsletter uh, on this very topic about European fragmentation, I guess is the word of the day. Um, And another milestone, I guess, that we should have uh, alluded to in the previous answer, of course, is the uh, Italy-German 10-year bond spread um, to give you an indication of whether the market believes, you know, um, Lagarde has the power to hold everything together. Um, you know, it, Europe has survived many, many crises, um, and um, you know, um, betting on the death of the European Union has been a widowmaker trade for so many for so long. Um, this is the ultimate test, um, and we shall see. Um, you know, it, it's going to be. It's truly fascinating. So, Paul, I, if I if I I'd be lying if I said I knew how it was going to unfold, um, but I, I am among the most interested observers of it, um, and we are going to write about it, of course, many more times. Um, but it truly is the ultimate test of sort of of, of the European Union's um, uh, solidarity. And you know, we watched with great interest as country after country rejected the sort of arbitrary imposition of a 15% cut in natural gas across the union. Um, and and that didn't seem to work, and that that proposal seemed to have sort of been a, a lead balloon, as we might say. Um, so again, to circle all the way back to the beginning, the single greatest geopolitical event to unfold is is whether we just give the cards right back to Putin, um, and um, all the sanctions would have been for naught, um, and the terms of the peace will be far more in his favor. So much to the detriment of the Ukrainians who have fought so valiantly to um, preserve their national integrity. Um, ultimately, they will probably have to be sacrificed to some degree um, to muddle our way through. Um, but if if these sets of events are insufficient to catalyze the type of adult conversation we need to have on energy, Lord help me, I don't know what will. Well, it's been a really fascinating discussion, and and I would encourage people to subscribe to your your Substack, and I'll put links in the uh, in in the show notes. And, uh, you know, hopefully um, we can have you back on uh, in a year or so or less. And, um, you know, the world is on the, an improving track as opposed to uh, uh, significantly and violently worse. Nothing would please me more than the combination of coming back on your show and the world being in a much better place. <laughs> Dimberg, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.